Jane is an all-in-one practice management software that can help you manage your practice with a suite of features that make it easy to meet with individuals, couples, families, and more. Here on Am I a Bad Therapist, we know that two of the most important things to us as therapists are confidentiality and our time. Thankfully, Jane understands that reliability and security are very important parts of running a private practice. Jane's cloud-based software is accessible wherever you have Wi-Fi, and their team is always ready to lend a helping hand. Jane is HIPAA and PEPITA compliant, and your data is stored safely in the country you practice in. So no matter where or how you practice, Jane's always with you in the most secure and helpful way possible. Not only does Jane help us protect our clients, but they help us protect our time too with features like calendar syncing, note templates, online booking, and they have automated reminders and workflows, which you know we love on Am I a Bad Therapist. And you can learn more at jane.app slash mental health. You can also mention the code bad therapist for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and board-certified art therapist. And I'm Katherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern-day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. While we're certainly not promoting actual bad therapy, we are here to shine a light on the messy situations that therapists face on a daily basis and to normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Catherine, advocacy is a part of therapy and it's something we might not always talk about, but it's present. Like, how do you talk about it? What are your thoughts about advocacy? Ha! What don't I advocate for? Um, I absolutely 
love talking about advocacy with um, like the interns that I supervise and speaking up for their clients and using their voice as a therapist, as an, as an educated provider for their clients. Um, and I don't think we talk about it enough that we do it as therapists. And I don't know if we really talk about what it's like to be an advocate for our clients and how hard it can be sometimes. Yeah, it can be really scary. It, I feel like even now I get a little nervous sometimes, but I push through it. But especially as an intern, as maybe in a new environment, as a new therapist, it can feel like we don't have a voice or that we're wrong or we're seeing something wrong or things like that. And it can be a really difficult balance to speak up. So we're going to hear from Laura today about a really pivotal experience she had in her training where she used her voice and it doesn't go the way she hoped it would, but she talks about how it benefited her moving forward. So tune in and just remember that this is not a substitute for clinical consultation, ethical guidance, or therapy itself. All right. Well, this is episode number 69 of Am My A Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We are excited to have you. And before we get into some bad therapist moments from you, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I'm a an integrative trauma therapist, and my practice is in Maryland in the United States. And I have two podcasts, Therapy Chat and Trauma Chat. And I founded Trauma Therapist Network two years ago as a place for people to learn about trauma and how it affects us in our lives, to learn that it is possible to heal after trauma and that help is available. So it has a searchable directory and it's also become a membership community for trauma therapists. That's awesome. Well, so many exciting projects. We know you from podcasts and things, but we're excited to have you as a guest. So why don't you jump into it? What made you question if you were a bad therapist? All right. Well, thank you. I am really happy to be here and and talk with you. And I was I've been thinking about it a lot. I don't um I don't really think that I have had the thought, am I a bad therapist? But more like thoughts like is this what I should be doing? Mm -hmm. Why did I want to do this? Um, is this right for me? Kind of. So, um, it's funny, you know, when I was thinking about it, it's like the thoughts of questioning my own self. It's always seems to be <laughs> external, more like, you know, they're to blame, not me. But, um, some of the hardest moments I've had as a therapist have always been moments where, my own stuff got activated, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so one specific thing I can remember, and this is when I was still in grad school, was um, actually both examples I can think of right now, I was in grad school. So in my first clinical internship, I remember I came into the field with a lot of background working with trauma because I had worked in a grassroots organization um, with survivors of sexual violence and it was very trauma focused. So that was the perspective that I brought in before I went to grad school. And 
learning the medical model and the top down kind of CBT approach really was harder for me to wrap my head around. But um, I was in my internship and my it was one of the first days I was there. My supervisor um, said, "Okay, you know, you're going to have some cases. You're going to take over these cases from other therapists here who have left or, you know, a case that I used to work with or whatever. And, you know, so read the chart, read through all the notes. And this was a community outpatient mental health clinic. So we had a psychiatrist and therapist on staff. And so I read through the chart. I read all the notes, you know, I'm devouring every word, like, how do we do this thing of therapy? And and what does it look like from the inside, you know, inside the chart, inside what the clinician does? Um, and the, the story that the chart told was a story of a child who had just experienced pretty much every possible type of abuse, um, who is now an adult and a parent and had been neglectful and abusive towards their children and their children had been removed. But this adult as a child was also removed from their family home multiple times and so had, you know, different stints in foster care. And so, you know, I thought, wow, this is going to be a really challenging client to work with, but I definitely had compassion and empathy for why they were in this situation they were in, why their children had been removed. I had empathy for their children. I had empathy for them as a child, but my supervisor was talking to me as if the the case presentation fit a diagnosis of like, um, I guess you would say sociopathic personality disorder. Now at the time, uh, they said antisocial mm-hmm. and then they even said psychopath psycho- psychopathy. I was like, mm-hmm. is that even still in the DSM? It wasn't. And, um, (laughs) but there was nothing, nothing, nothing in the chart about trauma in their diagnosis. So they had no PTSD, no rule out PTSD. Um, it was just all these, you know, bipolar borderline personality disorder. And so that was the first time where I really, even though I didn't really question myself deeply, I was like, how am I going to do this? It doesn't seem like this field that I wanted to be in is realizes that trauma is a factor in people's behavior and emotions. So, um, it was, and it was one of those moments where I had to deal with like confronting a conflict that I didn't really want to or know how to approach. I was really conflict avoidant, um, which is my stuff. Right. And so it was, it was a moment where I had to ask my supervisor, you know, well, why are you saying sociopathic personality disorder when this person clearly has trauma? Isn't it PTSD? Um, and yeah, so it, it made me doubt myself and it made me really wonder, it made me doubt our field and, the supervisor's reaction was not positive. It was like just doubling down on the pathologizing view. So I was like, Oh man, I don't know if I can do this. 
And that's, I was going to actually ask about that process. Like I can imagine, and I've had situations come up when you're an intern or like you're really fresh at something and, you know, you're sitting there thinking, I see something really different, but I'm new at this. Like, am I wrong? You know, do, am I coming in with fresh eyes? And it can be very difficult situation to then say to a superior, a supervisor, Hey, I think that, uh, maybe I'm seeing something else. So did you, in that same meeting, bring that up? Did you have to come back to it? What was going through your brain? Like, what was that piece like for you? Well, I did bring it up in that same meeting. And yes, that's exactly how I was feeling. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be coming in here not thinking that I know everything. I'm supposed to have fresh eyes, you know, beginner's mind. I'm mm-hmm. a student. I have to be respectful. I And I was an, a returning student. So I was like, 40. And um, I was very uncertain about how to navigate that. But I just, I just said, you know, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but from my training and experience, you know, there's child abuse, there's, there's physical abuse, there's sexual abuse, there's neglect. Um, You know, we know those are traumatic experiences. And the person's symptoms sound like trauma reactions. So, you know, wouldn't it be more accurate to at least assess for PTSD? So the supervisor was like, you know, like, oh, little student, (laughs) you who doesn't know anything. Um, Sure. Yeah. Let's um, I tell you what. You make your argument for why you think that this is a trauma situation. And why don't you write up like a memo and um, give it to the psychiatrist and see if he will change the diagnosis that because I was saying this person has a bipolar diagnosis and they're taking bipolar medication and you're not treating the PTSD. I was really like being a, you know, a problem. An advocate. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Because that's my background was in advocacy, but I was trying to like tamp myself down. Yeah. Um and she wanted me to. My supervisor did. So I I you know, I carefully very respectfully trying to use all the evidence base that I could find in 2009. Um to back up what I was saying. And I wrote this long memo and I put it in the chart and I, you know, I sent an email to the psychiatrist and said, you know, I would like to ask you to please consider this memo that I wrote that's in the chart and see if you would reevaluate your diagnosis. And, um, but you know, they didn't. So (laughs) did you ever, did you ever hear from the psychiatrist? Did you ever get to consult with the psychiatrist? Well, Yeah, the psychiatrist was like, oh, what? You know, I think he, the psychiatrist had a session scheduled with that client. So I was like, I'm like, you know, eagerly running the chart in with the memo, like right on the front with a paperclip, like, please read. And um, the, the psychiatrist had the session with the client and they, he didn't communicate with me at all. And then so I asked my supervisor, I'm trying to follow the proper, you know, the psychiatrist was like unapproachable. So um, my supervisor was like, 
you know, I'll, I'll ask him what happened. And then she came back and she said, he's willing to talk to you. And then I went and talked to him and I said, you know, so I was so, I mean, I was so nervous. I was sweating and everything, but I asked, did you read my memo? And, oh, uh, what, you know, like kind of dismissive. And then he read it and he said, oh, now she has bipolar. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so it just made me, I think I was pretty um, skeptical and cynical about the medical model already before, but I was trying to have an open mind and that just made me more skeptical because, you know, and now when we talk about like Akilah Riley Richardson, um, use the term therapeutic colonialism, like that's what that was, was Mm -hmm. basically blaming the person. I mean, I'm not saying that if someone has a bipolar diagnosis, you're blaming them for how they feel, but I feel like an accurate trauma diagnosis acknowledges that the environment is contributing to this, mm-hmm. you know, instead of it being something within the person that is innate or, or interchangeable. Yeah. Changeable with medication. Exactly. Um, um well, I, I think you're also speaking to just an accurate diagnosis is incredibly validating, right? Um, and that can help propel treatment. An inaccurate diagnosis can be a blocker as well. Uh, Laura, I'm so curious after, you know, here you are, you have identified an inaccurate diagnosis that's invalidating and improperly treating and medicating a patient who has showing trauma symptoms. You spoke up for yourself to both your supervisor and a psychiatrist and kind of got, you did get dismissed. And uh, did you continue work and you're still working with this client? Like, how did you even, what did you do moving forward when you're in this system that is tying your hands? Well, again, thank you. You're very validating because I'm like, yeah, that was messed up. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I knew it was, but Absolutely. it was also as an intern, I had no power. Exactly. But the, the good thing was my supervisor didn't try to prevent me from working with the client in a trauma focused way. So they were supportive um, of, of treatment. Maybe not the diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of like if you knew how to work with people in a certain way, you were allowed to work with them that way. They didn't Mm -hmm. closely dictate what you did. But I know I was a thorn in my in the side of that supervisor in her mind. She was she was annoyed with me. I was like a problem because I was constantly going, well, what about trauma? You know, and. And really, there wasn't anyone else there, even though everyone could say, yeah, my clients have trauma, because all of our clients basically had experienced some kind of abuse. So we all understood that as a traumatic experience, but nobody had training in trauma and how to, you know, like there's a difference between just knowing that trauma exists and being able to sort of name some of the things that can cause trauma to there's a big difference between that and knowing how to do therapy to help people heal from trauma. So, um, I kept working with the client the same way and just kept reporting to my supervisor, you know, what I was doing and what I was seeing with trauma symptoms. And, um, but I, I felt for myself, I just kind of felt mistrustful overall of 
the agency because, you know, I knew that, and I'm not saying this to indict the agency as a whole, but more the, the practices that they were doing, which were, and probably still are very widespread, um, that everybody there had trauma and very few people had PTSD in their charts. And, you know, uh, most people had bipolar diagnoses. A lot of people had borderline personality disorder diagnoses. And, um, you know, there was a lot of medicating, just a lot of heavy medicating. Um, And it was really hard to do therapy with people who were medicated to the point of not really as responsive to their emotions because they, you know, Mm -hmm. needed to be numbed to that level because of their severe trauma symptoms. Let's pause here for an ad break. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Our clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Hey, listeners, it's Catherine here, and I'm coming to you today because Allie's not the best at bragging on herself, and I want to remind you all that she has an incredible resource available for free at our website, cccs.care. Allie's Creative Intervention Library is full of easy interventions that even non-art therapist clinicians like me can use with clients of all ages. Every intervention has a list of materials, an entire process video where you watch Allie doing it, and a written description and steps so you can follow along at home. Plus, she even has a list of diagnoses that might find this creative intervention helpful. So if you want to access a totally free library of interventions for when you feel stuck with clients, check out Allie's website, cccs.care, and sign up for free today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now let's circle back to the show. Now, I'm wondering, did this come up or did you talk about this with your clients? And I ask this because I have found myself in similar situations Mm -hmm. where I'm part of a team or there's other people involved and I'm seeing something differently. And I have always found even today in my career later on, it's a balance that can feel tricky because you don't want to obviously insult or like shit talk a provider, right? That's involved in someone's case. It's of course not what you want to do, but also being honest with the client of like, hey, these are the things that I kind of see that are going on and I want to talk about it. 
I don't know if that happened when you were an intern. If it did, does it come up later in your career? Like, how about that piece of talking about this differential diagnoses with clients? That's a great question. And uh, y'all are really making me think a little more deeply about this long ago experience, although, you know, it, it's pretty formative for me, obviously. But um, like yeah, I, I did talk about, I talked about trauma. I, in, I gave psychoeducation about trauma to every single client I've ever come into contact with ever, because that's always been the case. And that's always been my perspective. So I didn't ever say, you know, oh, they're over medicating you, or you should really be suspicious about, you know, the treatment you're receiving, but just like, what do you think? How's this working for you? How do you feel on that medication? Do you, do you think it's helping you? If you don't think it's helping you, what would you like to do? You know, you have the right to talk to the psychiatrist, ask questions. Um, and I don't, again, I don't want to disparage any profession as a whole, but my clients reports when they have advocated to their psychiatrists often have not really been met with great responses because um, I think I suspect that psychiatrists are trained that if the client is asking questions about their medication, that they're trying to manipulate them in some way or something. At least that's what some of my clients would would hear. And I know that, you know, there are trauma-informed psychiatrists and there are other, other medical providers who are not psychiatrists too. But in the medical model, you know, at least the old way is don't ask questions. Mm -hmm. I'm the expert and you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're the patient, you do what I tell you. And if you don't, you're being resistant, et cetera. I definitely agree with that. And I feel like I now in my practice, I'm in private practice, but even before I, and I know we've a lot of student listeners um, and different, obviously provider listeners. I think the importance of networking is so important because here I'm in Connecticut. I have a handful of psychiatrists who I adore. Mm -hmm. I love them. I'm always texting them first, like really finding the providers you align with. And I, it's, if you're in an agency, they have the psychiatrist at the agency. Obviously, that's a different situation. But I think just even reminding ourselves that trying to connect with like-minded providers and find those people and work with them and collaborate can be so amazing and important. It can be great for our clients. And I, again, I have my handful that I go to so frequently when I'm looking for referrals. And it's just finding those people, though, who do align with what we see, you know, our values, our clients, things like that. But it, it can be so tricky when you're kind of like not stuck, but you are with a certain psychiatrist at an agency or something like that. Right. And, you know, and this was an example of where people who have less means have less opportunities mm -hmm. for access to a variety of, prov mm -hmm. of providers. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they can go where they can receive the help and, um, we have a shortage of psychiatrists where where I am, but I agree that having people that you know you can trust to listen, and I think that's one of the biggest things for all of us is just to have humility and listen. Mm -hmm. If the client says, I don't like how this makes me feel, be curious about that instead of just saying, you know, they're trying to get some medication that 
I don't know what the thought is, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Laura, you mentioned, and I'm not surprised to hear that this was a really formidable experience in your training and internship and probably career. How do you think it shaped where you went next or where you're at now? Uh, Probably the biggest thing was just, I've always, my values, I've always known that doing the right thing isn't the easy thing. And, and also being very conflict avoidant, you know, it was Mm -hmm. challenging to speak up. And as I'm a trauma survivor too. So when you have experiences of, if you express a a dissenting view, you might be hurt or you might be left or something bad might happen to you. You know, there's no shame in being conflict avoidant if, if you have reasons for um, being afraid to do that. But at the same time, um, I think probably the biggest thing was just that I do have a voice and I like to remember that in situations like that, you know, the thought is, or maybe my reaction is, well, I don't want this person to be mad at me, meaning the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. I don't want my supervisor to be mad at me. I don't want anybody to think I'm not a good therapist. I don't want people to think I'm not a team player. At the same time, this is an injustice that's happening and it's not right. And I am in a position that I need to speak up about it. So what can I do? you know, and, and who am I aligning with? I think that's one of the deepest things, you know, am I aligning with those in power against someone who's has less power or even powerless? Um, or am I going to remember the power I have because of the position Mm -hmm. that I'm in and use it for the benefit of the person with less power? And that's really, that's definitely a, uh, aligned with my core values. And though it's really, it's still scary every time. So, you know, even if I hadn't had the courage to speak up to my supervisor or to the psychiatrist, and even though it didn't really yield much, I mean, maybe it planted some kind of seed or maybe it didn't. Um, if I hadn't spoken up, then I wouldn't know that they weren't going to back me. (laughs) So, you know, if I had stayed quiet, I would have, could have told myself, you know, they'll support me if I'm just brave enough to speak up, but you know, Mm -hmm. not do it. So it just sort of leaves that like out there. But, um, but for the client, I, I would, if nothing else, I would have talked with the client about, you don't have to accept a diagnosis that doesn't, you know, doesn't fit your experience or, you know, let me give you some psychoeducation about trauma and see what you think. And that's what, that's what I did with everyone. I didn't push it on people, but I would just say, did you know that being sexually abused in childhood is a, an example of a traumatic event that could be affecting people, you, and these are some of the common reactions that people have. And these are, these are things that you have, you know, do you, could it be connected? And do you want to know about this? Now there are more books and stuff. But really, at that time, it wasn't as, you know, there were books about like growing up in an alcoholic family or um, experiences of victimization, but it's not from a trauma perspective, mm-hmm. per se. 
Now, how do you feel like you, I feel, it sounds like thinking of the client helps push through those thoughts. Cause I agree even today, like I said, like, you know, a decent amount into my career, I still do get nervous or like maybe my own self doubt, self doubt comes in of like, well, am I misreading something? Am I wrong? I agree though. I also tend to have the perspective, like I'd rather be the squeaky wheel who's wrong and like trying to look at every lens and I'll accept being wrong if I am, but I'd rather bring it up. But how do you push through those kind of the fear, the self-doubt that might come in? I mean, again, definitely thinking of our clients, but does anything else help? Yeah, well, you know, I'll be honest. It's not easy. It's not easy. And, you know, I think as therapists and as people, I want to be continually growing my whole life. That's that's my goal. So I'm always pushing myself out of my comfort zone. And if you stay in your comfort zone and you don't challenge yourself, then it's harder and harder to ever do anything different. But every time I do it, it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> Hence, I'm not in my comfort zone. But mm-hmm. um, I just, I have to really, I have to take my time. I have to work with my nervous system. Because, you know, like I said, I'm a trauma survivor. So when, you know, in some moments, I guess it's like, how much do I have to lose? You know, in some moments, it might be easier. But if it's something where it really could affect my safety, my livelihood, or my Mm -hmm. perception of safety, which again, can have a lot to do with like, how mm-hmm. people think about me, how mm-hmm. people view me, you know, mm-hmm. um, people pleasing, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as a coping defense for a traumatic childhood. Um, so I have to, I notice what's coming up for myself first and I sit with it and it's like, Oh, I'm scared. I don't just like tell myself to ignore being scared. I have to let myself feel it. And then have to kind of talk it through. I talk with my, my partner. I do a lot of processing, like external processing. I journal, I might make art, you know, I mean, that might be what it takes for me to be able to say 24 to 48 hours later, muster up the courage and figure out what I want to say and how I want to say it. Because I still want to be in my integrity in all my interactions as Mm -hmm. much as possible. You know, everyone fails in that way at times, but trying to, you know, I don't want to come at somebody. I don't want to make accusations. I don't want to um, shame them. So, but I don't want to shame myself. It's really, it can be really hard to stay in your grounded integrity and say something you did I didn't like it, or I feel you made a mistake, or it was wrong, or worse, you harmed someone, you know, Mm -hmm. or you're doing harm a lot. (laughs) I guess it also depends on my relationship with him, like with them, like him, who's him, Uh, with them. Yeah. (laughs) I'll take that to my therapist later, but um, (laughs) it's like, how much do I? Like I said, how much do I have to lose? So it relationally, you yeah. know, is um, how much is on the line? Yeah. How much is Percep- this important how much to per- me? Are you perceived to be on the line too? It's that perception piece, right? 
I can relate to this as an intern um, as well yeah. as the groups who do are not in power, right? I, I mean, I can only, I want to relate this back to kind of the trainees experience, Laura. I'd love to hear your thoughts on specifically what you're speaking to, like staying in your, your truth and your authenticity. Um, but so often I, I think I can speak for a lot of us so that we're interns or, or trainees insights and we don't feel like we have a voice and you use yours. It didn't get the result you wanted, but you used yours and you really gracefully explain the benefit of continuing to use your voice. It compounds, right? Even if you don't get the result you want the first time. Can you, what advice would you give to younger or, or fresher, newer therapists in the field who are still in that phase of being supervised or deferring to a uh, more tenured faculty? Um, what advice would you give them on using their voice? Well, I, I do think that humility is valuable. So not coming at people in like a power over way ever, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also remembering like from the Lion King, remember who you are um, <laughs> as they, as Simba, remember who you are. Um, like trust your own inner knowing and your wisdom, because you do bring a lot. You came into the field with uh, a whole life and a whole set of knowledge and wisdom and skills and trusting your intuition. But I think another piece of it that's important to name when, when we talk about trusting your intuition is that our gut instinct, which is like our fear sensor, isn't necessarily the same as our intuitive wisdom, mm -hmm. but it can, we can think that mm -hmm. our fear reaction is telling us something and we have to take action. So I, I guess I would say too, like get in touch with your own trauma history and your attachment injuries that we all have, because that will help you know when you're, maybe reacting to your own story and when it's about what's really happening therapeutically. So, you know, I think going back to this client, like for me, I think somewhere inside it, I have, I, I can identify with the idea of, you know, being seen as bad when I was really struggling and not, you know, struggling because of things that were not my fault, weren't in my control but being seen as a problem. And in this case, my client was seen that way. And so I was willing to take on being a problem because, which is probably what I was doing when I was younger too, right? Acting out. Yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of like using my, my gifts of acting out for the benefit of someone else. But, but I found a way to do it where it didn't sabotage myself or the client, you know? And so I guess with that, it would be like taking your time, just really kind of going slow and examining what is coming up for you when you feel like you need to advocate, you know, because sometimes we, our advocacy can be overly strident to where it almost is like we are becoming in a power over kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you don't really get 
people don't listen to you that way. I mean, I guess there are a lot of different approaches. There's activism and sometimes it's not, you know, nice. You do it the way you have to do it. But in our profession, when thinking about how to advocate or how to truth, speak truth to power in these settings, I don't know. I don't want to say don't, you know, don't shake things up because our field needs a lot of shaking up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess just make sure you know you do what you do intentionally so that you can think through some of the consequences and what risks are you willing to take? What, you know, what bridges are you willing to burn? Mm-hmm. You know, cause if you, yeah. let's say you're in the spring of your, or let's say you're in January of your final internship. If you blow things up too much, you might have to repeat that whole year. And that's mm-hmm. like paying for another year of school. So Maybe that's a sacrifice you're willing to make, or maybe you can do it in a way where you don't lose that and you still get your point made or get your advocacy that needs to happen. Yeah, I I hear a couple of things. One is go slow and get really comfortable with yourself, right? Like get really comfortable with what you're doing, why you're doing it, what the risks are be comfortable with weighing risks risks and benefits and that you don't always have to speak up every time you you can or should because you should be really thoughtful about when you do. Um, there was another theme, but I forgot it. Allie, do you remember? It was just such beautifully well, said. I can only say what's speaking said. to me, what's speaking to me is similarly like the, because I feel like I'm a very uh, instinctually feisty person. Like when I see an injustice or I feel like I need to advocate, I my initial reaction is 100% feisty and I have to pull myself back. And I like the intentionality piece is really so strong in this message for me of like, I need to collect myself because clearly I'm getting fired up. I want to be heard in the way that will get across my message and still be an advocate and still be strong but without, like you're saying, without that overpowering piece. So I definitely think, again, for myself personally, I usually have to take a step back, journal, process it, verbalize it, go to my network of people, and then come back more prepared and like thoughtful. So I can at least say that's what I'm hearing and relating to so much in this message. Yeah, I would say, you know, we all have someone we trust to check in with about things. So maybe just taking the time to ensure that the wit that what you want to say is coming across the way you want it to and that you're comfortable with um the potential outcomes. I mean, in this situation, to be honest, when I look back on it, I was doing nothing wrong. I was doing what was right. Mm-hmm. And they were doing something wrong. So mm-hmm. it was really kind of about exposing. Now, hey, family secrets uh, comes to mind. <laughs> Another mm-hmm. reason why it's hard to speak up, right? It is. Um, but uh, exposing wrongdoing and there's many ways to make a difference. So you know, you can do it on so many levels from micro to macro. And um, I know that every client I worked with in that agency knew that they had trauma and knew that I believed them 
and knew that, you know, I would back them up if they wanted to advocate for themselves and I would advocate for them if they wanted me to. So I can live with that, you know, as, as long as I know that I was doing what was aligned with what my clients Mm -hmm. wanted from me and, and were asking of me, then I was in right relationship to my power. I love it. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation, such an important message to talk about. We can't thank you enough, Laura. Um, And if our listeners want to connect with you outside of the podcast, where can they find you? Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been fun and and very thought provoking. Um, And people can find me at everything I do is at traumatherapistnetwork.com. Both podcasts are there, the membership community and how to find a therapist and um, so the directory is there too, for yep. those, those listening who might not be therapists looking for a trauma therapist. Yes, please. Perfect. It's right now only in North America, but hoping to expand, you know, worldwide eventually because therapy chats heard need worldwide. It. So people need it. Mm-hmm. Laura, thank you so much for coming on. And that's it. The OG bad therapists, Allie and Catherine are signing off for this week make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We love the Bad Therapist community so much and want to continue normalizing real therapist experience. You can help us by leaving a five-star review or sharing this episode with a friend or colleague. Are you a bad therapist and want to be on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song, along with many others, on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air for Effect. And if you've experienced an actual bad therapist, contact your state health department or head over to StopBadTherapy.com for more information. And if you've liked this episode, we've got plenty more. Yeah, over 50 therapist stories ready for you to binge if you can't wait for our newest episode next Monday. 